Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and patient care. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to visit oncdata.com for more content, including expert perspectives from leading oncology thought leaders, FDA approvals, patient advocacy, and much more. And don't forget to subscribe to Oncology Data Advisor on social media to stay up to date on the latest videos, podcasts, and more. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's World Cancer Day panel, featuring our Fellows Forum and editorial board members. We have a really thoughtful discussion planned for today, focusing on ways to improve cancer care on a global scale, including access to treatments in low and middle income countries and barriers to molecular testing. So without further ado, I will turn it over to our panelists to introduce themselves and then dive into the conversation. So Dr. Karif, I will let you take it away. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon to all of our viewers. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in for this uh, podcast on World Cancer Day. Uh, my name is Dr. Samuel Karif. I'm the Chief Fellow at the University of Miami Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, and I'm happy to be here with this awesome panel today. Hey, everybody. I can introduce myself. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, uh, I'm Dr. Huck. I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at NYU and clinical investigator track, and I'm going to incoming oncology fellow at U Chicago, which I'll be starting this summer. I have a public health research, and I'm originally from Pakistan, so this is a really important topic to me. I can go next. I'm Matt Hadfield. I'm a third-year hematology oncology fellow at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, we'll be staying on as a faculty member uh, specializing in early-phase clinical trials and uh, uh, melanoma. And I'm Joe Kalis. I'm an oncology pharmacist with UC Health in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hi, I'm Rachel Tucker. I'm a second year hematology and medical oncology fellow at Northwell Health. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, panelists, for introducing yourselves. Uh, let's dive right into it on this very significant day in the oncology and especially global health community. Um, I think it's a really timely start to our panel because we had a breath uh, taking a report that was released by the WHO's research agency, IARC, just a couple of days ago. And during that report, we learned that there will be at least 20 million cancer cases and 9.7 million cancer deaths estimated. Uh, and these are according to the most recent data from 2022. What's really um, surprising is that five cancer types, really lung, breast, colorectal, liver, and stomach together comprise about 50% of the new cases and deaths globally in 2022. And we uh, kind of confirmed that lung cancer was indeed, again, the most common tumor worldwide and was the top cause of cancer deaths. Uh, these numbers have not changed recently, um, despite uh, efforts for tobacco cessation and control throughout the globe. What was very interesting was that the report noted, quote, global inequities in cancer services, with most countries failing to adequately finance priority cancer and palliative care services as part of universal health coverage, end quote. So kind of with that background and striking findings, I was hoping to posit to the panelists as our first kind of theme here, talking about access to treatments in low middle income countries. Um, are there any trends or developments that you would like to share either from patients you've served, projects you've served on, or countries that you have participated with? I think I'll, I'll kick us off maybe as the, the pharmacist on the panel member here can speak a little bit to you know, patients we serve here in the U.S. and then the levels of difficulty with that and how that might apply to folks in kind of lower or middle income countries. Like, 
think the universal health care is an important piece of it. We've got different health systems in different countries and available. I mean, here in the U.S., we've got resources through drug companies and foundations and grants. But even still, I see many patients who are still struggling to have that access to care from a financial perspective. So I can only imagine how much more challenging that is in countries at different socioeconomic levels. So I, uh, I think... that's, that's a... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, I was just gonna say, you know, I, I think it's such an important topic. And I think, um, you know, as we start thinking more about novel therapeutics and, and um, therapies that we can bring to our, our, our patients, you have to wonder about how um, you can bring this out on a wide scale uh, uh, platform. And one really encouraging development that I've, I've uh, seen recently and, and, and just worked on a project related to is subcutaneous checkpoint inhibitors. So um, there's been several clinical trials looking at uh, the development of subcutaneous uh, checkpoint inhibitors. This followed, uh, you know, previ previous um, clinical development pathways such as rituximab, um, which is used in multiple hematological malignancies. And, and uh, there's actually now uh, a tezolizumab received um, approval in the United Kingdom uh, for a subcutaneous uh, version of, of, of uh, a tezolizumab. So I, I think, you know, being able to give something like that that's much less uh, logistically challenging could, could really help expand the usage of checkpoint inhibitors in low to middle income countries. And I think that's, you know, developments like this um, could really help bring cancer care all around the world where right now uh, it does tend to be siloed with some of our newer therapies. You know, Dr. Carey, you sort of, uh, you know, alluded to a trends and developments, right? I think what's interesting is that a lot of times for LMICs for low middle income countries, we often don't have information to what those trends and developments are just because they haven't been surveyed and thought out. Uh, you know, in my health management class I took a few years ago, one of the things we learned, one of the adages is that what can't be measured can't be managed. And I think one of the key aspects to addressing lack of access is lack of access to data. Um, you know, but thankfully, at least at least in Pakistan, where, where I'm from, there is sort of an improvement in epidemiological data. And there have been some reviews in patients with breast cancer and DOBLCL, for example, that find that in marginalized patients, there's actually a lack uh, of sort of, of, of patients who complete sort of the optic basic chemotherapy for breast cancer or DLBCL. A lot of time patients, uh, like they won't actually complete all their rounds of treatment as well. Um, so I think there are some interesting trends that we could think about. I think you guys have brought up some really interesting points too, right? Like insurance creates a really great buffer for a lot of our patients. So usually with copays, at least in the U.S., patients are still able to afford their chemotherapy regimens. But, you know, there's still even in a country like ours, there's still a significant portion that can't afford the rest of the cost. Um, in India, where I'm from, there's really not a big system of insurance, whether it's like universal or private as much. So usually when patients need cancer like treatments, they see an oncologist or go to a cancer center, which are which requires significant travel. But then also all of the cost for the chemotherapy is out of pocket. So um, just to give like a rough idea for a, um, I'd heard of a case with a patient with triple negative breast cancer that had relapsed. And so the treatment for just the initial portion about three months was about $75,000 out of pocket. That's just three months, right? Like who can afford $75,000 when um, in a low income country, let alone in like a high income country? 
I, I thank you all for your kind of perspectives on this piece. Um, we brought up kind of multiple levels of issues here, right? We talked about the individual level, um, the payer level, and even at the national level. Um, our group here is actually working on producing data uh, that can be measured, thankfully, um, to kind of show access to things like immunotherapy in stage three and four non-small cell lung cancer, the most common malignancy worldwide. And the goal with that type of research is, of course, to make sure that cost isn't a barrier to equity and access. So um, that's our kind of contribution to this conversation, but certainly appreciated hearing your thoughts on this as well. I think another really good point Matt and Wakas also brought up too was um, oftentimes here we, we go for IV formulations or subcutaneous formulations for whatever the treatments are. These really require a lot more like infrastructure and resources on behalf of the patients and a cancer center to administer. So um, trends and research really would change this landscape. So focusing on either increasing dosing frequency or do um, dose intensities or even switching formulations to something as oral would really help improve access to care. I think, you know, another thing too that, that I often think about is, you know, as we start to give more and more novel therapeutics, you know, we have checkpoint inhibitors, but we're starting to give, you know, CAR-T, we're giving invariant NK cell treatments, uh, bispecific antibodies that require CRS monitoring. Um, the toxicities are just getting much, much more complicated than just giving, you know, run-of-the-mill cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, so while we have the logistical challenges of giving these you know, patients worldwide therapies, they also have to have the, the necessary infrastructure to have follow-up to be seen, to be seen by people who are, who are specialized in these therapies enough. But unfortunately, the complexity of these treatments is, 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 is really accelerating at a pace that's much, much faster than it has been in, in, in previous decades. And I think, you know, some of that's going to be educating practitioners around the world to, to, to be able to, to administer these therapies and give them, uh, you know, in addition to just making them logistically available to everybody. You know, Dr. Hatfield and uh, Dr. Tucker, you both talked about toxicities and dose optimization. And I think we all know sort of the basics of pharmacology is that it's like the dose makes a poison. And when we think about sort of optimizing a dose, usually in phase one trials, you aim for the MTD, the maximally tolerated dose. And that's kind of the one you go with, you know, for to phase two, phase three, then eventually to when a drug is approved. But often we don't think about once we have that maximum tolerated dose, is there a lower dose that we can give to patients that would be less in cost to afford that drug, but would have similar outcomes? Um, and there have been studies that, for example, showing like an abiraterone, you can give a fourth of the dose and get similar outcomes for certain cancers. So I think that's something else to think about. That's a great point. Absolutely, because you know if we can, getting the drug to a patient, sure, priority one, but the levels of complexity to follow and if subsequent drugs are needed to have on hand, you know, like tocilizumab for CRS, I think it does create some additional barriers that need to be overcome. And I think also another principle of pharmacological clinical trials is no matter what the standard of care is, usually you add the next line treatment to it. So no one's going to do a doublet therapy in multiple myeloma when triplets are already standard and we're pushing towards quadruplet regimens. And this is also much harder to implement in, like, um, in other countries, whereas oftentimes the best drugs and the best combinations really do require like decreasing your doses, decreasing the amount of drugs and the frequency. And it's it's really not in the best interest of clinical trials and um, like um, pharmacies and companies like this to create these trials. Absolutely. I think a, a good transition in the conversation would be to um, 
talk about another big hurdle to bringing cancer therapies around the world, and that's molecular testing. I think anyone who's in oncology, especially anyone who's who's trained um, in the last five to seven years, has seen just the uh, the avalanche of new uh, FDA approvals for for uh, targeted therapeutics, and and I, I see this as a, a huge avenue to bring uh, promising therapies to, to patients around the world. These are oral medications, um, but they rely on finding, um, you know, genomic driver mutations. Um, you know, Sam talked about how lung cancer is the, the most common malignancy worldwide. I mean, EGFR mutations occur in 20%-ish of patients with, with lung cancer, but, um, you know, there's there's a, a plethora of data out there that outside of large academic medical centers, the amount of whole exome sequencing drops off precipitously. And in and, and patients, even in our own country, we're not doing a good enough job of of getting them tested for for driver mutations and getting them access to, to targeted therapies, and I, I think that's that's a huge huge problem worldwide. I think um, you know we need logistical ways to get people tested. Uh, I don't know. If, I would love to hear all of your thoughts. I don't know if that's more blood based testing with cDNA and not requiring archival tumor tissue or, or or opening up access that way. But it's certainly we're never going to get therapies to people if we can't get them tested for the appropriate mutations. Dr. Hatfield, I think this is a really important topic and I'd like to spend some time on it because when I think of this question, I think there's actually two parts to it, right? So the first is costs and we've been addressing this already in the uh, in the talk and we'll continue talking about it for years to come. But the cost of NGS testing, even though it's become more quote unquote cost effective in high income countries, is still just too burdensome for a lot of single payer systems, especially in low income and some middle income countries as well. Now, some countries are able to get around that, for instance, in South America, they'll have kind of limited NGS panels, or they'll substitute things like IHC and PCR testing for specific targets, for instance, in non-small cell lung cancer. And these might be cost effective, but as we know, you won't find the zebra um, NTREC or RET uh, mutation infusion here and there, and you do limit therapy options in those cases. So there's got to be a healthy balance between um, cost effectiveness and availability and access to patients. So I think that's a really key point that um, really everyone globally needs to keep an eye on, because if we're looking at cancer as this global problem, it needs kind of all hands on deck sort of thing. Now, the other point to this, of course, would be supply chain issues. You posited should blood-based testing maybe kind of uh, come in the way when we don't have archival tissue. I think that's a wonderful idea. Of course, the problem is the infrastructure and a lot of these private companies that are still kind of um, in the equity space haven't necessarily extended those supply chains. This is so crucial to make sure that patients from any country, whether it be LMIC, high-income country, wherever, have access to kind of standard of care therapies in other sorts of countries. So if I had a perfect world and could do whatever I wanted with my budget, I would really love to see more cost-effective ways of balancing NGS approaches and also making sure that supply chains were present globally if possible. I think another aspect to targeting your NGS testing is going like putting your money where you're going to get the most bang for it, right? So if you have certain populations that have a higher mutation of something that that really should be indicated in, in like certain countries and like other tests, maybe not as much if you don't have that um, incidence. But I, I think another problem we run into in this situation is a lack of diversity in clinical trials. And if we can get more diversity into clinical trials, it would also help us realize, oh, these these um, genes are much more important in this like certain region and these would be more likely to respond to certain treatments. So I, I think the more diversity we can bring, it would also help um, create better targeted molecular testing too, like based on populations. 
And I'd advocate perhaps for some more standardization <clears throat> across testing. You know, we've, we've mentioned lung cancer several times as a very burdensome malignancy worldwide, very high mortality rates. And I think back to checkpoint inhibitors, atezolizumab, pembrolizumab, et cetera. When those are all released, they each came with their own diagnostic to evaluate for PD-1 or PD-L1. I know we're speaking here more on NGS testing, but if we can incorporate a lot of that into maybe one panel, whether it's archival tissue, whether it's blood-based, I think that could offer some opportunities where, depending on costs and access and supply chain, but if we only need to run one test and can get a lot of actionable information from it, that may offer some advantages. No, no I think those are great, great points. And, and even uh, to, to circle back about some points made uh, previously, you know, you can't fix what you can't measure. I mean, we we, we don't even really under. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't know this data very well, but you know, I would imagine, and I would I would presume that most of the whole exome sequencing data that characterizes populations comes from. Uh, places like the United States and, and, and Europe, and, and we probably don't even have very good molecular characteristics of, of, of um, different genomic alterations in, in lower income countries. So, I mean, until we characterize that more, you know, we may be missing higher prevalence of mutations in those those places and, and, and not treating it appropriately. But, you know, as Dr. Carrick mentioned, um, you know, the logistical aspect of getting this done is, is, is the biggest hurdle. Um, and I think another aspect we also have a test on with genetic testing is just the other infrastructure you need in addition to just the sequencing. So oftentimes if we have patients with breast cancer and we do BRCA testing or ovarian cancer, you really need a good genetic counselor for these patients too. And a lot of um, like low middle and or like low and middle income countries don't have access to these. And I feel like this is probably another area where we could use telehealth to at least increase the span of the genetic counselors we already have. But I, I mean, the problem is it's one simple solution isn't going to fix this. We really have to come up with a huge interdisciplinary approach. And I, I think another aspect is we have an oncologic pharmacist and four medical oncology fellows. We're really focusing on like the medical oncology side, there, there's so much that we also have to do with radiation oncology, surgical oncology, and also palliative care. Yeah, Dr. Tucker, I think that's a really important point, right? Because we see a lot of different approaches taken by different players in the field. Um, maybe the more traditional universities often engage in these kind of partnerships with select um, locations, hospitals, countries, and that sort of thing. And they're excellent partnerships, though limited, of course, because of just, you know, people power, budgeting, that sort of thing. Governments also step in that role as well. Um, the US, the EU, et cetera, uh, often create uh, programs in terms of funding, project development, et cetera. Again, these are maybe larger in budget. Um, and then maybe slightly more um, uh, directed in terms of funding. But really, I mean, we can think of so many other players who necessarily um, could be uh, kind of assisting, right? Patient advocacy programs are now existing on a global scale and they're existing to help kind of connect folks with cancer with kind of local resources that um, these patients might not have been aware with previously. We can think of non-governmental organizations kind of stepping in to chip in as well. And even uh, for-profit healthcare companies, right? If there's so much um, access to these therapies in high-income countries, why not pilot them in low-middle-income countries to try to expand either for-profit, but at the end of the day, really helping to benefit patients. So I would love to see a lot more movement in this uh, sector, if possible. <laughs> Right. Um, so as we wrap up the conversation, um, any other points that anybody would like to make? 
Dr. Hanfield no, mentioned, uh, you were talking about disparities and you sort of at a local level. And I think that's that's a great point that when we think about global health, that, that disparities don't start abroad, they actually start in our own, own locales. And even if we want to treat, uh, sort of get involved in global health, we should always ask ourselves what we can do with the sort of institution we're affiliated with to maybe sort of find improvements or find ways of getting involved in global oncology. Uh, one of the sort of the sort of access to data for this is the 2021 Global Oncology Survey. Events at Cancer Centers actually found that that over 90% of cancers do have some kind of global oncology involvement, which is great. And over half of them involve some kind of global oncology training, which is also excellent. But if you look at the most common countries that are that are kind of involved in AA-associated cancer projects, they include countries like Canada, UK, Germany, Australia, not really your typical sort of your LMICs. So I think when it comes to global oncology, first, like let's try to aim for a more equitable distribution of countries that we get involved with, sort of creating research programs and fellowships with maybe LMICs as well. Um, and then the second thing is, I think, just the importance of cultural awareness. Like you can't just throw money at a problem and just fund trials. You have to also think about sort of cultural awareness, uh, you know, sort of people's uh, you know beliefs, their perceptions. In Pakistan, where I'm from, there's like a lot of alternative medicine. People will go to shamans, things like that. So that's the thing that just just providing access to clinical trials is not going to solve. I think that was a, that was really, really great points that you just made. And I think. Um, you know, to, to piggyback off what, what, what you're, you're speaking about and why I think it's so important is that, you know, we have to like act vocally, but think globally. Um, and, and that's something that he, here in, in Providence, uh, you know, we've been really trying to bolster our out, outreach programs in terms of screening and, and, and uh, reaching out to at-risk populations. But we actually have a very uh, high population from Cape Verde here who, who um, is, is actually in the category of patients who um, have the least amount of cancer screening in terms of cervical cancer so that, you know, identifying who you could help locally is, is big, but also to, 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 to be piggyback off one thing that you just said that I, I think is so important. We can, we can throw money at trials, but we, we have to keep having conversations about diversity in clinical trials. Um, we, we, it's been shown time and time and time and time again that phase three trials are, are very homogenous. Um, and if we want, you know, if we want to bring access to cancer care around the world, we have to also think about how to, how to make those trials reflect world populations. And, uh, and that's incredibly important. And, and it's not an easy fix. There's a lot of moving pieces, but it's something that we have to keep talking about. To, to build on those excellent points, um, my kind of take-home message from today would be to remember global health is public health. I practice in Miami and South Florida. Um, we're one of two North American localities that are over 50% foreign-born, meaning more folks are born in areas like Latin America and the Caribbean than within North America itself. So on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm constantly thinking about things like prevalence of EGFR mutations, access to care outside, are there clinical trials in other countries, that sort of thing. So I guess I, I would plead to the uh, listener from maybe the United States, Canada, or another high income country that this affects you as well, right? Because maybe it's not affecting your day-to-day -day life, but it might affect your tax paying money. It might affect the way that patients are cared for if they seek care in an institution near you. It, it matters, you matter. So thanks for listening today. And to also add, I guess, my take home message out of all of this is really like the five of us can't fix everything. It's, it's way too much to get access uh, to every person in the world. But uh, the least we can do is start small, whether it's increasing screening so patients are caught earlier, um, just starting in your own backyard, like the smallest steps you can make would really add up over time. Any other parting thoughts anyone has? Well, thank you so much um, for such a thought-provoking conversation today about the ways that we can address these barriers and improve cancer care throughout the world. So we really appreciate hearing all of your powerful insights.
So thank you as well to everybody for listening today and be sure to check back throughout the month of February uh, for some more interviews and panels from our team that we have planned, um, including another live YouTube panel on February 29th for Rare Disease Day. So be sure to follow us on YouTube and social media and visit oncdata.com to stay updated on all these latest events. And thank you so much to everybody again. And have a